entire community and everyone's looking to this young widow to see if, is she going to take over an agribusiness company. He left you with a mess. The tears started coming of, um, yeah, he really did. And, you know, and not a lot of people knew about it. And, oh, what have I done? And did I do the right thing? And um, you go through a little bit of it. You could go through a little bit or a lot of an identity crisis, actually. Uh, he pulled me out of the room and F-bombs were flying. I was like, tick. This is Built to Sell Radio with your host, John Warlow. You know, I love stories like Sandy's because you're not going to see them on the front page of the Wall Street Journal, but I think in many ways they're more interesting. They're the real life stories of business owners who have built and ultimately sold a company. And if you know someone like that, or if maybe you yourself are someone like that, please consider nominating them. We get our best stories from our listeners. Just go to builttosell.com slash nominate. Welcome to another edition of Built to Sell Radio. My name is John Warlow. This is the podcast that helps you punch above your weight in a negotiation to sell your company. Good to be back in your earbuds again today. We've got a kind of an interesting story to get to. Before we go there, though, I just wanted to say two things. Number one, if you like the show and would be willing to write a review, it would be amazing. A review really helps us spread the word. It helps us rank in all the streaming platforms. And we all read them, so it gets us kind of excited about putting the show together for you. So if you have a chance to review us on any of the big streaming platforms, it would be amazing. Secondly, if you like today's show, today's show comes from a nomination. If you know of anybody who has built and sold a company that you think would make a great guest on Built to Sell Radio, by all means, please nominate them. Just go to builttosell.com slash nominate. All right. With that business out of the way, let's get into today's episode because it's a little unique. And to set it up, I want to ask you a question. What do you think are the triggers that cause people to sell their company? You know, we all have these triggering events that come up from time to time. What do you think the most common triggering events are that cause business owners to want to sell? As you contemplate that, let me tell you the statistical answers to the questions. The two most common statistical reasons that people decide to sell are number one, they get approached by a potential acquirer with an unsolicited offer that makes them think twice, thinking, hmm, that's interesting. Maybe I'll dive in deeper. Or number two, they have some sort of health scare. And my next guest experienced the latter. Her name is Sandy Hansen Wolf. As she will describe, she and her new husband were not more than married for a year. His business was successful on the outside, generating more than a million dollars in annual sales when he was diagnosed with leukemia, ultimately succumbing to the disease. And what you will hear is the story of a individual who ended up owning a business she never planned to start, never planned to own, never planned to run, and how difficult that was for her being put in that position. So I just want you to think about, God forbid, if anything happened to you, what that would be like for the people in your life. And if there are things you need to do now to make sure that that is a uh, a reasonably smooth transition, it will probably be uh, one of the best things you can do for the people in your life that uh, you love and that that you hope to uh, 
to make sure that they uh, have a smoother transition in the event that something tra- tragic were to happen to you. With all that as set up, I think you'll enjoy this conversation with Sandy, who comes at it with a, from a sense of vulnerability and also uh, some great tips at the end on negotiation, uh, sort of back and forth that she experienced in the sale of her company. Here to tell you her entire story is Sandy Hansen. Sandy Hanson Wolf, welcome to Built to Sell Radio. I am excited to be here, and it's a it's an honor to be a part of your show, John. Thank you. Oh, it's good to have you here, and uh, we're going to talk about Ag Venture Feed and Seed, your company. But to do that, I want to I want to take you back, if you wouldn't mind, to January third, two thousand three, which was a really tough day for you. Tell us the story of how that day unfolded. Yes, happy to share. Uh, January 3rd, 2003 was the day that I lost my first husband, Randy. Randy was the owner of Egg Venture Feed and Seed. I was not involved. We were actually married only for 15 months when he lost his life to the complications of leukemia. So all of a sudden, the community, the bankers, the accountant, everyone was looking to me saying, now what for Egg Venture? And we did have a chance since he had leukemia to do a, you know, a, a little bit of a succession plan. And basically what that involved was, Sandy, you'll have to figure it out. Um, well, and, and actually the plan was, um, you know, if something happens to me, sell the company. So when he passed away, my plan was, I, I'll look to see how that will look. You know, what was that like for you? What were you, what was, what were you doing professionally at the time? And when Randy turned to you and said, "If I don't make it, mm-hmm. you know, I, I need you to kind of take things over and sell the company." What, what was your reaction to that? Yes. Well, actually, he didn't bring it up. I did hmm. because we were headed to the the hospital for months. For a, he was going into for a bone marrow transplant. And I said, uh, I think it was the day before we left for the hospital, knowing we'd be gone for months. I said, you know, the doctor said 25% of the people don't come out of this alive. What happens if you don't come home with me? And so we took, I don't know, I'm sure I have the sheet of paper somewhere. It was a, you know, a <laughs> blank notebook sheet of paper. And I said, tell me where your bank accounts are. Because we didn't have time to go through that. We were only married for a short time and then dealing with his sickness. And he just said, you know, if that happens, sell my company. Here's my few bank accounts. And um, I use that sheet of paper as the roadmap. So it was when he passed away, um, it was obviously pretty traumatic, number one, to be 30 years old and a widow. Um, And then two, all of a sudden, the entire community and everyone's looking to this young widow to see, is she going to take over an agribusiness company? And um, the first, so I think it was a few days after the funeral, I went into the company and talked to the staff. And that's when I found out we had great customers. We had amazing employees and the company wasn't doing well because of his absence more than anything. So that was a real shocker. I bet. Mm -hmm. Tell me what the business sold. Like what was the business model for folks who've never 
been to your town? What what is Ag Venture Feed and Seed? Yes, so we were a regional feed company. So we had a retail location where hobby farmers and small farms would come, you know, come with their trucks or whatever and get animal feed. Uh, we did most of our business delivering bulk feed out to dairy and dairy and beef farms. And so we were the local um, link to the farms and we worked in partnership with our vendor companies who did the manufacturing um, and helped us on the service side. So it was, um, you know, regional to central Minnesota. And um, yeah, so we, we, obviously I was there for 18 years. So <laughs> my, my main thought when, when he died was, well, then I'll just have to figure this company out and restore it and I'll sell it in six months. Well, that was my <laughs> very utopian, um, I don't know, hopeful plan. Because what you learned from the employees was it, quote unquote, wasn't doing very well. What did you discover? I mean, when you say it wasn't doing very well, was it in financial distress? Like, give me, tell me what was going on at that point. Yes, it was actually the perfect storm, really. We had, prior to to Randy's passing, we had bought out his partner. Um, They weren't, you know, they weren't seeing eye to eye, a typical thing in partnerships, weren't seeing eye to eye, and um, they just needed to part ways. So Randy, uh, you know, they, you know, he just, he, he just said, uh, we need to pay more just so that we can be out on our own. And that's usually what happens a little bit when a partnership goes south. So. And how did Randy value the business for the purposes of buying out his partner? I worked with, worked with our attorney or his attorney at the time, I guess Um, I wasn't too involved, worked with the accountant and the attorney. So and did he was, take cash out of the business to pay him off directly or was it paying him off over time? Yes. Um, so it was, it, so we took out new loans through our local bank uh, for the amount that we could. And we leveraged typical thing. You leverage your home to do it. Oh, and wow. what we couldn't cover with a loan and get collateral that way, the extra went on as a, a payout. Um, like a seven-year pay to the owner. So they finance some of it. Or yes. Okay. Okay. Pre- so let me get this straight. So, so, so your your husband passes away. You kind of walk in to a situation where you've taken on debt, both in the business, but also personally guaranteeing that debt mm-hmm. with the bank in order to, to, to pay out the partner. And mm-hmm. you've got an obligation to the partner for seven years going forward. Yes. And, and so that debt is, is probably causing just a financial burden. You've got to pay down that debt. But what else is going on? Is the, is the business healthy other than the debt? Or is, is there other, are there other issues in the, in the company at this time? Uh, so we had a very healthy customer base, uh, which I'm grateful for because a lot of the customers stuck with us and gave us a chance to figure this out when a lot of the, I mean, I would hear rumors obviously in the community, like she'll never be able to do it. What's a young woman doing an agribusiness anyway. Um, she's just doing this for fun. <laughs> um, and you know, the thing of it is as an owner, you can't tell a lot of people the situation, you know, like our, my internal customer, my, my internal staff knew what was going on. My banker knew um, and my accountant. You know, but other than that, I was pretty tight-lipped with how bad it really was. 
And it was bad because we had just bought out the partner. So we had, I always say we had half a million dollars in debt, which would be about 2 million right now. And um, the owner who had just died, typical entrepreneurial model where you don't have a lot of processes written down. So one of the biggest struggles we had were what are our margins and what should they be? And um, it doesn't really help when you can't go ask that person the questions that or should be running your company. So that was a great lesson right out of the gate is we need to cross train and we need to figure out how, even in a small company, how to put things down on paper. You know, we talk a lot about standard operating procedures on, on this show and it confounds me from time to time how few entrepreneurs create standard operating procedures, documents, written instructions, and so forth. Because I think at the end of the day, we know we need them. Like we know that like, it's like vitamins, right? That, you know, you, yes. you kind of know you should take them, but sometimes you just have better things to do or you forget. It, as you look back at Randy's situation, have you been able to pinpoint why he did not write up his standard operating procedures and, and the instructions for you all? Yes. Um, you know, I think he, he, I think everyone was really intelligent in the whole mix, including Randy. He was there all the time. So when you're there all the time, you're always there to answer the question and you know the information we need to work day to day. And, you know, so a lot of people are busy working in their company and not on their company. And that's the same thing. It's like he was enjoying what he was doing and he kept the whole mix going and it worked great. And, um, and so I think a lot of people just get really, I, I don't know that this was really, I just don't think he ever got around to it or thought he needed all of these written protocols. Cause he was just so present and passionate about his company. You know, he was going to go out boots first kind yeah. of idea. Now little did we know that that was going to be much sooner than. Yes. You know, than well, later. I think a lot of times, you know, especially entrepreneurial minded people, including myself, I'm more visionary Mm. and um, want to go after the next big idea more than do the daunting work of putting stuff, you know, any information to paper and creating processes. So, you know, the one thing that I work on and I still do in my coaching and consulting is simple works, <laughs> simple processes work, complicated does not. And um, so, you know, so we slowly built that into it. So, we, you know, you can pay a lot of money for consultants that will, you'll have a process for everything. So just def defining what do you need first and, and going from there and, and allowing it to be a process more than this daunting thing of where to start. Yeah. So, yeah, for sure. So, okay. So let's go fast forward. So roughly where are you at the time of Randy's passing? How big is the company in terms of revenue? Mm -hmm. um, roughly, what are you guys doing at that time? Yeah. So when he passed away, it was right around 1 million in sales, which was a, a nice small company 20 years ago. So, um, you know, I had no, I obviously no idea what I was getting into. And thankfully, again, employees um, were there to support and um, a few key professionals. So fast forward, so people understand, how big did you get Ag Venture Feed and See? Like, what was the top, uh, at, at, the, at your height, how how much revenue were you generating? Yes. Um, we had grown a few years before I sold, we had grown to um, a little over the 8 million mark. Wow. And it was kind of by design, John, because I knew that I had a lot of, 
ideas and solid opportunities to really scale it much beyond that. And uh, what I stayed true to was I really wanted a lifestyle type of business. And when you lose someone when you're 30, I really was mindful of my employees' life outside of work, as well as my own, and wanting to rebuild my life too. So I worked really hard and I was super passionate. And I also promoted the fact that everyone has a life outside of our work too. And we built that model into, um, into that. So sometimes I would get condemned of or criticized of why aren't you growing even larger than you can? And I'm, and um, at that point in my life, I loved I loved the size we were at, and we always were. You know, we I mean we scaled considerably, and that was. Would I do it different now? I'm not sure. Um, I was really proud of what we built, especially the way we started. So. Mm-hmm. Got it. So you went you went roughly from from a million in 2003 to to eight million. You know. 2017, 2018, mm-hmm. 2019, yes. that kind of time frame. Got it. So that's, I mean, that's a significant amount of growth. It doesn't sound like a lifestyle business to me. It sounds like a, a, yeah. a growth business. Yes. It's, it's, it's a nice size, small company. Definitely. Yeah. When you look back with hindsight being 2020, mm-hmm. what do you see as the one or two strategic moves that made the biggest difference? Is there one that really pops to mind? Mm-hmm. Uh, yes. And um, I'll you know say this in all humbleness. The nice part about coming in blind to a company is that you have no, I felt it was a, you know, some sort of a burden back then, but really it was the ace in the hole. I could come in with a fresh set of eyes and look at things very creatively. And so um, since we didn't have money and we were you know, having to pay off all this new debt, we didn't have money to hire people to help us either. So then, uh, you know, I guess um, in hindsight, I'm like, I created the gig economy model 20 years ago, and I didn't even know what I was doing. You know, I'm like, we're gonna, so we, instead of hiring everyone in house and, you know, like most feed companies, they'd have their own big milling plant and things like that. I'm like, let's contract everything out. That, you know, so I always kept a very small key staff in the beginning because we had to. And then I'm like, how do we keep costs down? And why, if we don't need people full time, why wouldn't we just hire people on contract or work with our vendors and not people pay people at all, just partner with them? And so that was the best idea I could come up with. And I'm S- like, Sandy, how, did, how do you do that? Admittedly, you're in, you're in a male dominated industry you're a woman who's coming from a different industry into the ag business without a lot of experience. How do you do that without undermining your credibility, without undermining your ability to lead? Effectively look stupid without undermining, because I think curiosity <laughs> and the willingness to ask great questions and the, and the kind of uh, learner's mindset and the beginner's mindset, I think is an incredible asset. Uh, but it can also make you vulnerable oh, to, to yes. some people. How did you stick handle that? Well, number one, I think I was very vulnerable. I mean, it was, you know, not, number one, you're, when something tragic like this happens, the competition wants to bite too. It's like, ooh, weak moment. Let's go market it to their customers, which they were always trying to get each other's business anyway. But um, 
um, I think even more. So you had competition chomping, but some of the people, I mean, even our vendors were like, we're not sure she's going to make it. So we need to protect these accounts too. And so, um, so yes, I think some people did think this is a stupid play, <laughs> you know, quite mm -hmm. literally um, it will never work. And I remember having succinct conversations. Um, I think I just had so much conviction that, I mean, actually I was, um, I felt for lack of a better way to say it, I felt really trapped and desperate of how am I going to pay off all this debt? So, but I was also really convicted on the passion and the legacy that was left for me. And, um, and the, the nice part about not having a lower point to go to is that you could only go up really. Right. And I didn't see it as that, but, um, I think I did, I did appear stupid to some, and I remember having succinct conversations, especially with our vendor partners of, because they were starting to work against us. Um, you know, and I get it to protect their own and, you know, their own stake in the claim. And I remember having succinct conversations at our front counter with our, their, their sales reps and so on saying, you're either, okay, this BS basically has to stop. Either you are working with us or you're working against us. You decide, but we're not going anywhere. We're not shutting the doors. We're not going anywhere. So you, you decide, do you want to work with us or against us? And they decided to work with us um, more, but it was a constant battle of trying to, you know, even get my toe in the sandbox to be able to play the game with them. And, um, you know, over time, I guess I really changed my mind on that because when you are different, you know, we don't always get to play in the sandbox anyway. And I decided I don't really want to. Let's just do good, be very people oriented, do good for all and um, be good to people, have a good service, have a good product and make them want to work with us, you know, or make them make them curious of how we're doing it. Hi there, it's John Morlow. You're listening to Built to Sell Radio and I'm talking to Sandy Hansen-Wolf the former owner and CEO of Ag Venture Feed and Seed. Sounds like a very, you know, very middle America, very traditional. This is not a technology company. This is not innovative. In, in a, I'm sure you did right. innovative things, but it wasn't like you're, you're, you're landing <laughs> aircraft or spacecraft on right. no. barges. This is a, mm -hmm. a, you know, a blocking and tackling, doing the right things, doing the, the simple things really, really well kind of business. Did you ever feel resentful, resentful towards Randy for putting you in the position that, that he puts you in? Albeit, obviously not intentionally, but did you ever yes. feel like a sense of resentment? Um, good question. And the answer is yes. And not right away. <clears throat> and the reason I say that is um, I always accepted my lot in life pretty well. Like, well, I guess this is the path that um, has been created for me. And it wasn't until, um, you know, I guess I'm kind of, you know, I, I like to learn and I'm like, well, I guess when, when somebody dies, people go to grief counseling, I guess that's just what people do. So maybe that would help me, you know, and this was maybe two years later. And so that's what I did just cause I'm like, well, I might be able to learn and who knows what I don't know. And I think I'm doing all right, but you know, whatever. So I went to grief counseling to a pastor 
And he had noticed that I hadn't gone through the anger phase of grieving. <laughs> so he's the one who mined that out of me. And, he, you know, he actually used like some swear words to get the anger phase going of like, and I'll paraphrase, but doesn't this just tick you off the mess he left you with? And I'm like, well, and I was still pretty calm about it. I'm like, well, this is just how life went, you know, and it's like, well, he left you with a mess. And, you know, and, and, um, you know, it, it didn't take too long before the tears started coming of, um, yeah, he really did. And, you know, and not a lot of people knew about it. And, um, but, you know, it wasn't intentional. He would have never done that on purpose. He was the kindest guy ever. So, um, yeah, so, you know, even then, but actually after that, what I would just, you know, I'd be like, okay, Randy, I'm in a pickle in this one. You know, the whole 18 years I owned the company, you better come down and help with this one or whatever. <laughs> I can't figure it out. So, yeah. Yeah. You know, I think anyone, yeah, I mean, even now looking at the pandemic, so many owners are in a state of such frustration and resentfulness of different things and people leaving. There's so many reasons to be upset. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And again, no fault of your own. You're left to deal, pick up the pieces, but not Something uh -huh. you you asked for necessarily. You mentioned there were two big strategic moves that you made, or a couple. One was uh, having this beginner's mind, or just curiosity, just do, doing things differently, and and being an outsider actually helped you. Was there a second sort of strategic move you made because you did grow the business from a million uh -huh. to eight million? That's a that's a huge, you know, that's a huge uh, growth. Uh -huh. Was there a second thing that you did strategically that you think really paid off in the end? Uh, yes, I think we always had a, I mean, just to keep it very um, top level, we always had um, a visionary element of like trying to think about what, how we could transform the company and, and up level next, you know, to, um, so we always were shifting of how we did things or what service was needed, that kind of thing. And the one, you know, like actually just personally, the one thing that really started working for me is instead of being so defensive and not knowing who was on my side, I really kind of let my wall down and I said, who can I trust? And I picked a few trusted people who were trying to help. Um, so that was the beginning. Um, the one thing that we did uh, about three years before we sold was it was a come to Jesus moment for myself and my two key staff of, okay, the industry is now really changing. We've lost a few key accounts. And it wasn't detrimental at that point. And I said, I'm fairly certain there will be more of this. Um, and either we double down and we create a new dynamic um, to our company so that no one vendor has too much control over us, or we quit while we're on top. And I try to sell the company now. And we decided to create, well, actually, so my idea was um, and this was before it was, I always look at human trends, like of superfood for humans now that's really popular. And my idea four or five years ago was let's put an essential oil blend in feed because I'm fairly certain that we're going to have to figure out how to do animal feed naturally too. And so that's what we did. And we were, uh, you know, I'm sure the big companies, all the big companies have something like that now, of course. Um, so that's what we did. And my, my goal was, well, if the dairy and beef industry in rural America isn't doing good, let's sell essential oil-based chicken feed to urban America. 
you know, like the backyard farms and so on, because those people have disposable income when my farmers don't, they're strapped. And so my thing was, I want to sell chicken feed to um, metropolitan areas all over the U.S. using an e-commerce model. And so it was as far as chicken feed. And what happened was, so we developed, it was just a brand within a venture. And about a year before we sold, we made it into a separate S Corp. Um, and it's called New Heritage Feed Company. And I still own that, that startup. So I'm actually looking for new partners now as I um, need a new team and things like that and have different aspirations for that. So you had New Heritage as a brand working effectively in parallel to Ag Venture. Yes. Yep. Got it. Mm-hmm. Got it. And it was a strategic move to make our company more dynamic. And so I went to a different milling partner so that we could have our own. Actually, I thought it was going to be one product and it, it ended up being an entire brand, a brand line of feed. I'm like, all of a sudden uh, we went from one product and then that took off, um, you know, in our area of the chicken feed. And then our farmers saw that it worked good. Like the chickens were healthier naturally and, you know, I don't know, laying more eggs, that kind of thing, faster to market if it was meat birds and so on. And so they asked for other things. So it ended up being calf feed and beef feed for beef farms. And then we did a dairy additive to add onto the top of a a cow's feed to help with their health and so on. And before I knew it, we had a whole brand line, you know, and had created basically a new feed company. So like, whoa. Yeah. So what, what triggered you to want to sell Ag Venture? Uh, um, I, so I'm, you know, in, in your, the built to sell model, the day that I started working in the company, I always thought, well, I, you know, just the way I got in, I'm like, well, I'm going to build it to sell it. That was my mentality before I even came across your book, John, all those years <laughs> ago. Um, but I'm like, I never want um, my employees to experience what I did, you know, uh, where, um, like if, if something would happen to me, I want to make sure this company runs without me. So that was my first, um, goal was that I figure out how to run a company where the owner can be plucked out. But, um, um, what, so actually many years into it, I, I always kept a finger on if someone would come knocking, I should at least entertain a conversation. So I always had that, your company should be for sale model um, or mindset maybe. And um, actually you went to a broker, I don't know, six, seven years ago to see what it would even be worth. Um, Cause I was, I was starting to notice, I think it's really good for an owner to know when, when they're like, you know, cause I had built a speaking and consulting company at the same time I was building a venture because people would ask me to speak and then help them turn around their companies and so on. And I love that side too. So I ran those in tandem for about 15 years, moonlighting, doing leadership, speaking and that kind of thing and still do that. But um, um, so I always was aware of, you know, when, when is my mindset changing? Uh, when am I losing passion? Cause I think that's a, kind of a, a little bit of a, a deadly mindset path to go down mm-hmm. when you own a company of when so you were you feel like your passion for ag venture. Is that what you're, well, I had noticed about, you know, uh, I sold a, I sold 
about a year ago now, but I, I had noticed about five years prior to that, like I was just starting to get curious about other things to do. And like, what's over there? Cause I, it had consumed me for 15 sure. years. So, um, yeah. And so I had kind of noticed, uh, uh, started to notice dwindling energy more than I had had and things like that. So, um, I started just thinking about it, you know, and I think you think about, it's kind of like a roller coaster ride. The first highs and lows are really grand. And then it kind of just settles out at a, at a whole hum state at the end before you get off. So this is, this is sort of 2015, 2016 kind of timeframe when yeah. you're starting to lose energy for it. Had, had you at that point paid off the debt that you'd originally incurred? Yes, through? actually. Okay. Yes. And, you know, and so I still had the passion and the passion I had more was for the people. Like I loved my employees. I loved our customers. I loved our community. I was, t- I was growing tired of, or weary maybe of just always figuring out how to be David in the David and Goliath picture, mm-hmm. like how to stay relevant and in business. Um, yeah. So I'm sorry. Now I lost my train of thought of what I was going to say. Yeah. Can you I was ask just that curious question to know, again? Yeah. I was just curious to know what, what triggered you to want to sell. Oh yeah. So um, just seeing the market change and knowing that if we wanted to go through yet another turnaround, that we would have to double down again. What was the um, change in the market that you were seeing? Oh, um, this was pre-pandemic, but you know, a lot of the farms were becoming corporate. A lot of our smaller to mid-sized farms were, you know, the prices were historically bad for such a long time that farmers were having auctions left and right. So even when we were doing nothing wrong, we were losing customers because they were just leaving the industry. So I could just see the face of farming changing and going more big farm and corporate to, you know, obviously gather the efficiencies there. Yeah. And they would have their own suppliers for feed, the big mm-hmm. national companies presumably got it. Yes. Okay. So you see this writing on the wall and you think, okay, I better get out. What happens next? Um, so actually we did. So I was actually pretty dedicated. So I think at first, when you think about selling your company, it's a blip on the radar screen and then you get re-energized again. Um, and so the last few years that I was in the company, I was working, I was really doubling down on new heritage and building that out as a separate brand. And, um, and it was kind of exciting because I felt like it was the future of where agribusiness is going. And, um, and that, that still remains the case. Of, but I got to believe that's, that's causing some problems for ag venture, right? Like as you focus more on the new company, ag venture is starting to suffer, no? Um, so we had, we actually, we were very transparent about where to spend our energy and who was doing what. So at that point, and for a long time before that, actually, most of my staff ran the day to day anyway. And so I was still there, but we, we worked on this new model together. Like we, I mean, egg venture was our largest seller of new heritage. So, um, so they, you know, so we were proud of what we were building there. And we also decided to hire like a fractional um, integrator under the, uh, um, you know, a fractional person to help with mm-hmm. some of the management so I could focus there. So we made that decision as a, as a you know, a key team. Um, so everybody kind of knew what I was up to, but I was losing a little bit of connection, you know, with some of the day-to-day just going elsewhere, but we were yeah, I mean, it's not any different than how a lot of companies do it, where you use 
your current resources to build a new platform. Yeah. So you're taking money from AgVenture and you're investing it in into New Heritage to help it grow yes. and, and taking resources. Mm-hmm. So let's talk about the sale of AgVenture itself. So what happens? Uh, how did how did that come about? Yeah. So the um, let's see. So it was um, sometime early summer or late spring, doesn't matter, of 2020. Um, I still remember it because I almost fell off my chair. The uh, broker for the company that bought us called and it was a Monday morning and he just introduced himself and he just said, I'm the broker for um, our vendor company. And I'm wondering if you would entertain a conversation of if you're ready to sell your company, we'd be interested in taking a look. And so my this answer, is a, a, a what they call a buy side broker. So he represents, he or she represents the company that ultimately bought yours, which is called yes. FormaFeed. Mm-hmm. Yes. Okay. Yes. So the FormaFeed broker approaches you. And what was your reaction at the time? Well, I was shocked because usually they don't buy out retailers because we really were the middle person in this whole equation mm-hmm. where, uh, you know, most of the, you could do direct to the farm instead of having that you know, um, local location now and how things were changing. So I was a little shocked because I had actually had conversations with them. I mean, just briefly um, a few times over the years of, would you ever be interested or whatever? And it was a short conversation of, we just don't buy our retail partners and things like that. So I kind of thought it was off the table really. And so I was a little shocked of that. They were even interested at all. Um, and so, you know, I kind of was ready for the conversation because of my mentality over the years of sure. saying yes to a conversation when someone approaches you. Yeah. And that, so what happens next? So we meet, um, you know, at a, at a place not local to us. I mean, 20, 25 miles down the road. You know, I'm very, very, very private. Um, in a, you know, in a local community, it's easy to watch people. And I'm just, you know, I think with being a young widow, I just always sought out privacy to rebuild my personal life. So we met somewhere um, in the middle, you know, and, and had a lunch and kind of went over the first round of him, you know, just telling their intentions and me getting a little more information. And, you know, from there, we had a second lunch where we signed a non non-disclosure agreements and all of the legal paperwork and shared numbers and all of that. So, and, and, and what's your, what's your, uh, what are the emotions running through your head during these lunches? Cause I, I got to imagine with this exciting new venture, the new, new heritage feed company, this must feel like Christmas day in a way, because here you are this sort of perfectly, you know, wrapped little gift of, potentially selling the legacy business so that you could go focus on this other thing mm-hmm. that you were excited about. I mean, like, am I getting your emotions right? Like what was, yeah, what were you? I, I, I think they were all over the board, John, really, because, um, you know, it's, re- I think a lot of entrepreneurs in this, ca- this category of this is my baby, you know, right. and, and actually even it brought up <clears throat> grief again, because, you know, who am I without this company? Mm-hmm. Would I be letting, you know, my late husband, Randy down if I even entertained this or sold? And what would it mean for my great employees and customers and the community? And so I was concerned about all that. 
but you know, it, it kind of like the, I already had had coaching clients for quite some years and did speaking and all of that. So I had a little bit of a landing net to go to if this were actually going to happen. Um, and I had done a lot of processing of like, who am I without this company? You know, like mm-hmm. the psychology of that. But um, so it was, it was kind of all over the board, but really my main emotion on it was, I don't think this is going to fly because I had it reinvested all of our profits in egg venture by decision to rebuild this new company thinking I'll scale this for the next X amount of years and get our, get our profits back. But basically using all of our, our, our profits to fund the new thing. So I'm like, it's not going to be worth much because our bottom you, line numbers are reinvested. Right. You stripped out all the, the profits from mm-hmm. traditional profits from Ag Ventures and put them in a new, her- new heritage. So you're, you're not showing a lot on the bottom line. I want to get to how they dealt with that in, in valuation. Before we do, though, you mentioned something that I want to explore a little deeper. You said you'd done some work around like who I am, who am I without my business? Can you describe what that work? I mean, did you go to some retreat center and, you know, yeah, <laughs> yes. uh, meditate for a week on your own? Yeah. Or what was, what did you do to, to, to think You know about what? That? Very truthfully, I do have kind of a, um, a side where is very contemplative and um, I don't know, my, my logical husband who works in, in, you know, in, in logistics management uh, would say I have the woo side, you know, and so the on. Woo side. Yes. You know, like that. But um, so I think I did, I did do a lot of journaling of if I didn't have this, what would I do? You know, or who would I be? But I also want, and I also was it a, you know, a peer group of business owners for many, many years and still am. I think it's the greatest thing people can do. Um, um, and I saw some of them sell their companies. So I was, I'm always aware and I love human psychology. So I'm like, what's it like to sell your company? And I saw some of the dark nights of the soul that they went through um, and asked a lot of questions, you know, like, how does this feel? And kind of watch them either um, stumble through it or, or excel through it. And what were those key areas where people would get tripped up? And it really is an identity crisis for quite some time. One of my um, colleagues described it as a hangover. And it kind of is that where it's like, oh, what have I done? And did I do the right thing? And um, you go through a little bit of it. You could go through a little bit or a lot of an identity crisis, actually, and, and really get stuck. This is Built to Sell Radio. My guest today is Sandy Hansen-Wolf, the former owner and CEO of Ag Venture Feed and Seed. My name is John Warlow. Got it. And so you'd sort of cut off some of this in, in, at the past because you'd, you'd done some of this thinking in advance. So you have these two lunches with the other side. At, at what point do you come clean with the other side saying, hey, we've been taking a lot of our profit and, and putting it into new heritage. So we're not showing a lot on the bottom line. Like, was it yes. over the second lunch that you sort of revealed that piece of the equation? Mm-hmm. Well, so I was careful because we didn't have, you know, the first lunch was generalities basically because we didn't have anything legally in place to protect information being shared. I told the truth right away, you know, and, and I said, we're really excited about what we're, what we're building and we're mm-hmm. getting synergy on it. And I know that you all know that because you can see that some farms are buying other things besides your products and so on. 
and they were great. They were great to partner with. So, um, so it was a really friendly conversation. I said, you know, we can, we can go through this sale process, but I'm going to tell you that it's probably not going to be lucrative for me at all because I purposely decided to keep the company and use any sort of profits or most of them to, to um, build out this new side. So I'm not sure what kind of numbers we're going to be looking at here. Mm -hmm. And, you know, one thing that I, so then, you know, once we did have all of the legal paperwork in place to share information, um, I actually, over the years, always made a Excel spreadsheet that I uh, exported from, you know, our QuickBooks or whatever it was, um, and added back in every year any extra cost, any extra expense that I wouldn't have spent um, in, a, in a year where profits wouldn't have been good or something. So I had all of that. I always called it my adjusted gross income statement. Where, Your adjusted um, growth income statement, is that what you call it? Gross, you know, like oh. um, adjusted gross, like what would have been our income if I wouldn't have spent extra. And so, so we actually used that Excel spreadsheet somewhat to kind of paint the picture of how it could have looked if I wouldn't have put New Heritage Fico in the mix. And so we used some of that. But really, what I said is, I don't think this is a good time for me to sell because I'm not going to get anything close out of it because, because we're, we're now finally turning the corner on getting some sales growth. And I was, I was hustling, you know, to get some retailers going and things like that. So mm -hmm. I'm like, we're finally having fun again after a few dark years of knowing, not knowing what we were going to do. Yeah. Yeah. And when you say, you know, you, you'd like to kind of do better or you thought you might do better in the future. Like, did you have a sense of what the company might be worth on a multiple of adjusted EBITDA? Meaning once you strip out the expenses associated with new heritage, you've got a prof, like a, a, a healthier profit line. Had you got any sense in your mind, what multiple of that profit the company would be worth? Um, or should be worth. Yes. And it was fairly low and only for the reason that um, most businesses like ours never sold. They went out of business, Yeah, you know, and then yeah. all of the bigger players around would just assume the company. So I knew that that, you know, that multiplier wasn't going to be double digits like some of the tech companies were getting. Sure. Um, so you know, it was usually in our industry, someone like us, if we were lucky enough to even find a buyer, it was right around the four to five percent category. Four to five percent or four to five times right. EBITDA? Four to five times. Yeah, I apologize. Four to five well, times. Um, yeah, the net income or EBITDA. Yeah. Got it. Okay. That's 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 good for me to know. So so you thought maybe maybe you could get four or five times if you dressed up the profitability. And so what was what was their thinking like when they came to you with an offer? Like how were they proposing to structure it? Um, so their offer was low, obviously. I mean, that's where everyone starts, right? Lower yeah. than the four to five times the adjusted normalized EBITDA. Yes, I think at first I would have to think back. Um, it was. And, you know, the thing of it is, I was fairly convicted that I, I, I'm just going to have to muscle 
muscle up and, and, and get through these next few years if I want to, you know, scale this company back and, mm-hmm. and build up a, a stronger company. And so I actually just kind of thought like, well, yes, I'm ready to sell. However, I'm not sure it's going to be good. So, you know, I'm not going to make a short-sighted move here um, at all. So um, I was just very, very forthright about that of, you know, I understand where you would be at with this, where I'm at is totally different. So, um, so that took some back and forth, obviously, of how could we structure this at all. And actually, you know, to be very um, frank with them, uh, when they came to me, I said, I will entertain this, this process um, under a few conditions. One, you treat my employees, well, you treat the employees very well. Two, this process is completely amiable because this is hard on me because it's my late husband's company. So there's a lot of emotion attached to it. And three, I, I don't really want to know what you're going to do with the company after I sell. <laughs> if it gets to that point, because you, I knew that they didn't need our local presence, um, nor did we really, except for the, the local, like the hobby farmers that would come in. I mean, a lot they of our, if they didn't want the local presence and you're a retailer, what, what, what were they interested in? They were, they were interested in stopping the synergy of this new brand we were building um, or this disruption that it could potentially cause. Um, we had great customer base where we shared accounts and then we also shared work on it and then thus the uh, margins. So they, they could have captured the rest of the margin. And then- So these are a feed, the, the, the company that acquired you, this, this form of feed, they are a, a wholesaler or a manufacturer of feed? Yeah, manufactured and they have, I mean, it's a bigger company. They have many- many um, different businesses within their company. And okay. yes, it was just made sense for them for efficiencies that we shared a lot of the accounts anyway. So if they bought out a small partner like myself or a retailer, they could capture all the margin. And um, we, we had great employees. When you, know, it when was, you say they so, didn't want the new heritage, they wanted to put a stop to the conflict. I, I don't understand that. What, what do you mean by that? Um, so we, so we were building, I mean, we were at the beginning phases of being a little disruptive in our area because we were selling, um, beef and dairy products, um, that we used to sell under the vendor company's feed. Like it would Mm. become a customer of the vendor company. And now we were selling our products instead. And Ah, and so farmers were starting to catch on to, uh, some of these new products. And so we weren't selling as much of their products, but building our new side. Uh, but we were yeah. actually, we, we kept the straight conversation, the, the, uh, we kept our work partnership going really strong. So we weren't really replacing business unless there was peril on a farm and we were in danger of losing them. So that wasn't our model, but our model was to build a new customer base with our own products, but we were working in the same area. So then, you know, farms that were on our new heritage feed with essential oils um, that can cause disruption in a, in an area. And our goal was to have that catch on, but also keep our good partnerships in place, which can be tricky. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. So, so when did they like let you know what they were willing to offer for your company? What was their, did they do it verbally or did they send you a letter of intent of some sort? No, they were really, yes, they, um, I, 
they we well they they honored my request of having it be a very amiable and high level mm -hmm. process so um you know i sh shared my financials after we had the legal paperwork in place they we met for a nice lunch with the deal team from their company and they kind of went over their written first offer and you know and then i went back and did my work with my accountant and my attorney and um said yes or no or whatever and we went from there so it was a very professionally done process got it and 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 how did their first offer match up with your thinking that you know maybe four or five times profit was, mm -hmm. was reasonable, like on the adjusted profitability, like, was it kind of close to that or, or like well below that or how did no, it was, Yes, it was well below, you know, and I, I understood where they were coming from too. And I just said, you know, for this, I'm better off keeping it. Mm -hmm. And, and if I can make it go even for a year or two more, I'll capture this, this price back just in mm -hmm. our, in our, our own profit. So this really isn't something that, would work. And so that was the, there was definitely back and forth and the dealer always is going to be. And, you know, it's a game of, you know, holding, holding our own ground, but having both sides be win winners, you know, well, we both want to be winners. Yeah. Out of curiosity, like what was their reaction? Like, I'm, I'm curious to know whether, cause I guess when somebody tries to negotiate with you, uh, you know, uh, you can, what is it? The honey attracts more bees or whatever that expression is. Uh -huh. You can be super nice about it. And, and so when you say like, it doesn't make sense for me to accept your offer because I get all that profit or I get all that money if I just kept the business for a couple of years. Um, was their reaction to kind of slam their fist on the table and say, let me tell you why you're wrong and, and, and have a really aggressive negotiation stance or were they, smooth and understanding and empathetic and like, like I'm, I'm trying to get inside the negotiation. Yes. Was it acrimonious or very sort of everybody sort of, yes. you know, what was well, their reaction when you, um, when you So that? there was, I mean, obviously there's, there was one person on the team that was the hard driver that, you know, his job was more to, to stomp, stomp, stomp any sort of doubt down and make sure that I was, in my own place and things like that too. And I understood that, um, that it ticked me off once in a while. Yeah. You know, and, uh, um, do you think and, in, in retrospect, and maybe, you know, this did, did they choreograph the good cop, bad cop routine in advance? Did they say, okay, we're going to, we're going to meet with Sandy. I'll be the prick who drives the price and you be the, you know, the Robin who, or the good cop. Who, who, who kind of, <laughs> do you think they had that conversation in advance? That's a good question. Um, I think that um, the person who was doing, I mean, the broker sat in the room and then there was two or three others. The, the guy who did the negotiating was really good at his job. I'll just give him that, you know, and um, was it really tactical on their point? Um, maybe a little bit, but it was pretty, it's a, it was a fairly, easy, small deal for them in the big picture of the deals they were making with, you know, much larger companies. So what made it, what made him good at his job? He knew what buttons to push. And he was like, he was a stern negotiator. I really did want to sell. Um, the only thing I was concerned about was my employees and 
um, the heart that I had for the company and the community and so on. Um, I really wanted to sell, but not like we can never sell. We can never be so convicted to sell that we make a bad deal. Right. So you were still willing to walk away. Yes. And I did actually Um, towards the end when they said, okay, we've got a counter please drive to us, which was an hour and something away. And I said, I I'm don't sorry, want to What come. is a counter? Oh, a counter offer. Like where oh, they came okay, back with it. a better price. Um, and I said, I actually was kind of a little bit annoyed with the whole process because it was so back and forth for such a, you know, it was a small company in the big picture of other companies they were buying. And I said, I really don't want to spend any more time on this unless you're really ready, you know, to, and, and you've got your P's and Q's together. Otherwise you're wasting my time. And so, you know, the broker called and said, please come to our company headquarters. And, um, and I'm like, are you ready? Because I want to make sure that we're going to, you know, have this professional meeting. Um, and when I got there, they didn't even have like any written offer. It was verbal and that kind of <laughs> inside I was steaming. Um, and then the offer again was like, actually at this point they said, and we'll buy out new heritage too. Um, for $25,000, which was a complete insult to me because I had spent two years and multiples of that building this new company. And um, uh, if I could have hit them with a broom, I would have. That's how mad I was inside. But, you, you know, keep your cool because they're just, tr- they're doing their job, right? And I just said, well, it appears that we're very, you know, we're, we're on dif- different planets here. And so I think for today, um, I think it's best that we just go back and do our, our work and we'll stay good partners and doing work. And I, I just don't think we're even close. Um, <laughs> yes. And the broker knew that I was about ready to snap, I think, but I was keeping my cool. I was pretty insulted actually, but uh, he pulled me out of the room and F-bombs were flying. I was so ticked. But, <laughs> but I, I left that day, I, you know, I went back in the room and I just said, I don't think we're even close. And so let's continue to do good work together. And maybe at a later time, we can address this again. So that's how that day ended, which I thought, I thought going in, it was going to be the day that we verbally agreed to the offer. So, yeah, so I went, I left that meeting and I thought I was going to run the company for many more years. And where's the course? Um, five minutes down the road, the broker called and they said they were sorry and they really did want to make a deal. So, so then I just said, well, then we need to, we need to, we, we need to really cut the BS and get this done. So, so then things progressed fairly quickly after that. What's the BS? Um, just there. Manipulate, you know, like what I felt was manipulation on their part of, um, you know, I was strong enough over the years of just, you know, having to deal with much larger companies than myself. Um, and I, I learned how to stand my ground. And, um, you know, and I just told the broker, I said, like, I get what you're doing. It's not working. So um, no more stomping me down if you really want to make a deal, let's find something that works for both of us and do it. Other than that, I'm going to go back and do my good work. And so to just to be clear there, 
the the principal negotiation point at this point is the value of the company they're willing to pay. It's not like it, that's what you're going back and forth on is is they keep lowballing and and you're like this is not even worth the conversation. It's, it, it, yeah, it was a joke. Right. You know, because okay. I, I had told them that I don't want to consider it if it's going to be an insulting offer. So, um, and are you are you able to share? you know, roughly what multiple of your adjusted EBITDA they were offering at this stage of the game? Are you able to Yeah, share? I think it was. So actually five, six, seven years prior, we, I worked with a broker just to see what we, we would be worth. And it was, you know, over a million at that point. And, you know, we got substantially less than that in the initial deal, but how we structured it, it was probably a four to five multiplier off of our um, EBITDA, which was quite a, well, off of the adjusted adjusted yeah um and that still wasn't good enough for me because i'm like this is just really low for what we've got you know equipment buildings blah 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 and so how we structured it was they paid x amount you know that that multiplier and then three three years of a bonus um, that would be paid out annually on all customers that they kept which i was fairly confident they'd keep quite a few of them because we worked on a lot of the accounts together already and had a great relationship. So that was my, my one, you know, like, I don't know, way to maybe capitalize on the synergies that we were building without cutting it off totally. Got it. And the bonus, was that sort of an all or nothing? Like if you kept 80% of the customers, you got the bonus. If you didn't, you didn't, or was it based on each account you they kept, there was a dollar amount associated with that. Yeah, it, um, it was actually uh, like 0.95 or 1% of the gross sales of all the customers they kept. Okay, and, okay. So, so, and I so, knew that that was probably going to be pretty close to what our gross sales were anyway. So, so, so far that's worked out pretty, I've gotten, you know, every January now I'll get a check for three years. So I've got okay. one and it worked pretty good so far, but it's based right. on, can they retain the accounts? So. And are you involved in helping them retain the customers or have you completely uh, exited? <laughs> so, um, so uh, I built the company so that I could be plucked out. And um, when you're plucked out, it doesn't feel very good. I'll just say that. So the day that I signed the paperwork was my last day at the company because um, they said, Sandy, we don't want to hurt your feelings, but we don't need you. And, um, and that was good for, for me somewhat because of the heartfelt nature of selling my late husband's company. But the other part is like, I remember sitting there like the week after I'm like, can't someone just call me and ask a question? Um, but I, but I remembered, Sandy, you spent the last 10 years building this company to be plucked out. So be proud of that, that you don't have an earnout or anything. But it feels weird just to have, but like my, my staff knew the ins and outs of the company because I structured it that way. Sure. Sure. So, so you're That's proud, neat. but it doesn't feel very good either. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so you left the day. I'm curious about your relationship with the buy side broker. So 
So this broker was paid by the acquirer. And what, how would you characterize your relationship with the broker who was paid by the acquirer? Yeah, um, he was, you know, he came from large corporate deals. So he kind of knew how to finesse a conversation and so on. And I, I didn't have my own broker. I didn't feel like I needed it because it was more of an internal trade. We were already familiar with each other. And so I worked with my accountant and my attorney who had been with my company for the 18 years I was there. And that worked really well. And so the broker, I just, you know, I was, um, I mean, you don't want to tell all the details, obviously, but I was pretty forthright with where I was at, you know, and so it was a really, it was a really good relationship. Even where, though ultimately they, were they, were they clear with you that when push came to shove, their loyalty was to the acquirer. Like they were the one, the acquirer was the ones paying their bills. Were they clear or did they, they cross the line to make it sound like they were representing you, but also them? Oh, yes. Well, no, I mean, I understood that. And again, like just being an observer of human psychology, he was really good at finessing that middle ground. Yeah. I mean, I understood he was working for the buyer, but um, he also knew a deal wouldn't go through, go through if I wasn't happy too. So, um, so, you know, he never played that card outright with words, but, um, yeah, there was, uh, you know, it was obvious he was working for them, but he, he would know how to be like, yeah, that's gotta be hard. You know, like he was, he was very good at what he did. Got it. So he kind of absorbed your energy, took it all in, didn't necessarily react. Got it. That's that's uh, that's helpful for sure. All right, we're going to do something uh, new called due diligence, which is a rapid fire list of questions. Then you can just give me a short answer to each one, and Mm -hmm. this will serve as as uh, some advice for folks going through the process themselves. So, quick answer: What was the slimiest thing? Uh, that an investor acquire ever tried to, uh, you know, get over on you to sort of hoodwink you in the process? Yes. Um, um, I would, um, it was kind of a sometimes spoken, sometimes unspoken threat to take our customers, mm. you know, like the, the accounts that we shared to take them in house without us being there. So that threat was kind of always more, more in the last year spoken, more like, we can take this account anyway. So, I mean, had I not sold, they probably would have. Yeah, yeah, yeah. In what way is that not just negotiation? Did you see that as as crossing the line between like good, you know, good strategic negotiation, but had it crossed the line into something more personal for you? Um. Yeah, it was kind of um, on the table for a few years of, you know, we can just take your big account customers and we probably will at some point because that's just the I mean it was actually fairly factual too like that's just the way the markets were going and the industry so but you know it was a constant reminder of where our place was and me jockeying for position as the small player in the in the bunch biggest mistake you made selling in the selling process um I don't know if it was a mistake as much as a wish um this was during the pandemic so I was always my my part in the company was always the people part, like mm. keeping the pulse on the people. And I was working from home. And so I was very disconnected with my staff. And I I just 
you know, in hindsight, I realized how miserable that made me. Hmm. Um, so I wish I could have involved my, you know, in, in hindsight, I would have been more involved in the last year and I would have figured out, but everybody was trying to figure out how does business leadership look under a pandemic? What's one thing you wish you'd known before you went through the process of selling? Um, the heartbreak that you'll feel afterwards, because I gave my, you know, and this is just the way it is. Last question in our due diligence round is what tool, uh, resource, course, event did you attend that helped you inform you about the selling process? Is there somewhere you can you can point people to an online course or a uh, whatever, anything that would be helpful for folks going through this for the first time? Yes. Well, um, I'm not sure if there's one tool. The, the thing that I did most, and I don't say this just because you're one of them, but I, I did read books. I mean, that's the first thing I did was read books on how to, how to build your business so it can sell. And then what would make it sellable? Like that was- Which, the, which books that, did you find most helpful? Um, you know, and I say this, I say this and it's not, it's a truth because I did this 10 years ago. Your, you know, or whenever your book came out, Built to Sell was recommended to me by some of my colleagues. Great. Um, what else? We also did, you know, like um, the traction model of the Great. You know, Gina that, book. That, yeah. uh, yep, that entrepreneurial operating system. Um, Sounds like you read Michael Gerber's, you, you referenced working on, not in. Did you yes, read the E-Myth? Um, well? the E-myth. So yep. I read some yeah, of those books one. and I, I, I did, I took them to heart and I'm like, the, yes, we have to make something unique so that we're sticky and things like that. Right. So that was first thing. The second thing is, um, so I don't know if there's one tool, but like I did go to some um, executive ed programs. I believe in ongoing education. Um, I would, you know, the, the biggest thing I did, I guess, was I met with my attorney and um, lawyer many years before I thought this was going to be a thing Great. just to get an idea of what it would look like. And then I also asked a lot of my colleagues who had gone through it. And it sounds like you're part different. of a mastermind. What, what mastermind group are you part of? Yeah. So I put myself in, a, a, I believe everyone should have this, a peer group of other yep. business owners. And I was in Vestige. Great. Um, and, and also um, a women's business owner group called Women Presidents Organization. WPO. And, uh, yeah. Yes, WPO. Um, and having a peer network and then also having a private coach. I had a private coach for all those years too, except for the first two where I couldn't afford it. And she helped me a lot through that too. That's great. So we'll put all these notes in uh, in mm -hmm. the show notes as well, or references to the links and so forth for folks. WPO, I've definitely heard of. Um, and and would you recommend the Harvard course on negotiation strategy? Uh, is that something you'd recommend other entrepreneurs go through? Uh, yes. I mean, it's it's um, not inexpensive. I'd imagine uh, it's Harvard. I, I, I think um, it, it's world. Uh, you know, it's worldwide known it's you know known throughout the world and people come from all over the world to go to it and um the psychology of all of this is something that um you know we leave so much money on the table and i know that i left money on the table too but i probably would have left a lot more had i not put myself through education okay so, so the harvard course you would recommend other entrepreneurs take yeah so it was it was excellent and you know there's many books it's kind of neat when 
the professors teaching you are also the books that you have on your bookshelf on negotiations. So, right. Yeah. 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 Who was the, who was yes. the professor? Who was the lead professor of that? Um, William. Um, it's you. I think it's U R Y. I'm not even sure how to say okay. it. Okay. Well, um, we'll we'll try yeah, to find them and put them. Getting, in the getting show to yes. Um, getting more. Um, there's a bunch of books like that. That it's just really neat when the author that you just read the book on is standing right in front of you. In the yeah, I'd imagine. Yeah. In the Howard Halls of, of Harvard, which is pretty cool. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm super grateful for you sharing your story. I think it's it's uh, it's instructive for all entrepreneurs, in particular those who maybe haven't yet thought through, you know, the what would happen in the tragic event of, you know, if if I were not here, how would mm-hmm. that impact my loved ones? And so I think you're sharing your stories is really. Um, really helpful for folks. Um, if people want to reach out, uh, where's the best place that they do that? Are, are you a LinkedIn person or where, yes. where can people sort of say hi so if they want to reach out? Sandy Hansen Wolf. I'm on LinkedIn and Sandy at Sandy Hansen Wolf.com is my email address. Well, I'm, I'm really grateful for you sharing the story and uh, all of your lessons. Uh, we'll link up everything in the show notes at builtthecell.com. Uh, Thank you for doing this, Sandy. Oh, thank you. What a, what a privilege. It's just wonderful, John. Thank you for having me as a guest. Built to Sell Radio is produced by Haley Parkhill. Our audio and video engineer is Dennis Labataglia. If you like what you've just heard, subscribe to get a new episode delivered to your inbox each week. Just go to builttosell.com. Thanks for listening to Built to Sell Radio with John Warlow. For complete show notes with links to additional resources, visit builttosell.com slash blog. John is the founder of the Value Builder System. To find out how to improve the value of your business by 71%, visit valuebuildersystem.com. John is also the author of Built to Sell, creating a business that can thrive without you, and the automatic customer, creating a subscription business in any industry. Connect with John at Facebook.com slash Built to Sell or on Twitter at John Warlow, W-A-R-R-I-L-L-O-W. Thanks for listening.